Hello, and welcome back to the Automotive Podcast. I want to take a second and wish everyone a happy holiday season and thank everyone for their support this year. Uh, This is the first podcast I've ever done, and I am honestly pretty astonished with how much support has been shown and how many people are enjoying the podcast. So I plan on keeping it up and putting out weekly episodes, and I hope you guys will continue to show support, and I greatly appreciate the support you have already shown. For this week's episode, I looked into a car that I just knew a little bit about. This car is the Porsche 959. Now, the little bit that I knew about it was that it competed in the Dakar Rally in the 1980s. And that seemed like a cool little tidbit. You wouldn't normally think of a Porsche as a rally car. So I was like, let's look into what this car was all about. And I uncovered a pretty amazing and kind of hilarious development story that led to the creation of this Porsche 959. The first thing you need to understand about the Porsche 959 to understand its development and the problems that were involved in its development is that this car was meant to be everything. It was supposed to be the most technologically advanced road legal car ever made at the time it came out. And it was supposed to be turbocharged, it was going to be all-wheel drive, they wanted to have impeccable handling, and they wanted the car to approach the 200 mile per hour mark. On top of that, they were going to add driver-controlled ride height and suspension settings, and best of all, Porsche thought that this car was going to be very easy to develop. Now, if that last part confuses you a little bit, that makes sense. This is a lot for a single car, and that sounds like a pretty difficult car to develop. So why was Porsche so confident in the beginning? Well, the year was 1983, and Porsche was a relatively small company. And their plan for developing the 959 was to base it off the 911. The 911 was already a fully fleshed out car, so they were just going to take that car and work with it a little bit. The 959 would use the same chassis as the 911. The engine that would go into the 959 would be the engine from the 911 with Le Mans Racing 962 heads. So they already had all the parts, they just needed to stick it together. And at this point, Porsche had a lot of experience with turbocharging, So that little addition wasn't going to be much added since they had lots of experience with doing it already. Porsche wasn't even worried about essentially turning a 911 into an all-wheel drive car. Because the 911 has the engine mounted in the rear and power is already given to the rear wheels, all that's required is sending one drive shaft up towards the front and adding one differential to split the power between the two front wheels. No big deal. So the idea for the 959 was there, but Porsche also wanted to be able to test this new car, and to be able to really show off its prowess and its power and its all-wheel drive capability. And what's a better place to do that than Group 
be rallying. The age of the supercar has arrived. Four-wheel drive and turbocharging are the keys to success, and all future serious contenders must heed the warning. Yes, the 959, a Porsche, was originally developed to compete in the greatest rallying group ever. However, Porsche wanted to do things a little bit different. To be able to compete in Group B, you had to homologate your car. You had to create 200 road-going versions of the car to qualify for competition. And every company that was involved in Group B did this. However, there was a massive difference between the road-going versions and the rallying versions. In some ways, they weren't the same car at all. But Porsche didn't want to do this. Porsche wanted the road-going versions to be identical, for the most part, to the rally versions. This way, you know, when a customer comes in and says, hey, why should I buy this 959? Porsche can be like, hey, it is exactly the same car that is destroying the stages out there in Group B. And while this is all good and dandy for sales, it makes it harder to develop the car because not only do you have to make it powerful and competitive in the rally scene, but you also have to make it street legal, reliable, and a daily driver for the customer side of things. So really, Porsche took a lot onto their plate with the development of this car. So like I said, development started in 1983, And, you know, everyone was real psyched. Everyone was going, we're going to get this done. It's just a little modification on that 911. No issue. Uh, Turns out, not so much. Development was incredibly slow. The things I talked about previously were all there. They did have the engine. The all-wheel drive wasn't actually that big of a deal. They got it. The turbocharging, no issue. They even had the aerodynamics of the car locked in very quickly. What really slowed the creation of this car was that Porsche wanted to computerize everything. Kind of like modern cars today, they wanted the engine management, the suspension adjustments, the ride height adjustments, all of these different systems to be controlled via computer. That's no big deal these days, but this is the 1980s. This is the very, very start of the computerized age, and computers are big, heavy, and not all that easy to work with. The exact computer systems that Porsche chose to use to develop this car are called EEPROM, E-P-R-O-M, and this is a type of memory chip. That stands for Erasable Programmable Read-Only Memory, Essentially, it's a way of storing data that can be read by the car, not programmed by the car, and can be erased easily for people to reprogram the chip. And that's not actually an issue. EEPROMs are very common even these days, and were pretty much the standard during the 1980s. The problem was that Porsche shot themselves in the foot. EEPROM chips are erased using UV light. So this means that if a EEPROM chip is accidentally exposed to the sun, it will clear all of the data that had been written to that chip. 
not super great if you want to keep that data controlling a car. So there's two ways to fix this. One is a little bit more expensive, and that is you essentially create a cartridge. You can kind of think of it as like an old game cartridge, where it's a plastic casing around the chip that protects it from any light exposure, and reprogramming can be very easy because you just pull in and out this cartridge and work with it however you need to to make the adjustments. The other option to protect these memory chips from exposure to light is to coat them in resin. It is cheaper, because you don't have to build a cartridge to protect the chip, but once the chip is installed and coated in sticky, thick, hardening resin, you can't really pull it out and reprogram it. And of course, Porsche chose to use big blobs of resin. So while they were developing this car and they would go out for testing and they'd get feedback from the drivers, instead of just pulling out a cartridge, reprogramming it, readjusting it to potentially get more out of the car, and then slotting it back in, they had to basically get an entirely new control unit with a different EEPROM chip because the old one was stuck in resin. So this really, really slowed down the development. They'd go out for testing, and instead of being able to swap in and out different, uh, essentially, computer maps for the car to read off, they would have to go through this really slow process of switching out the entire control unit. On top of that, the computer to do this, to be able to take in the data and adjust the data and everything, was so large that it sat in the passenger seat of the car, and it was very heavy. On top of that, they put instruments attached to the steering wheel so that they could measure the steering angle and get more data to be able to adjust the car, but this means that the test driver literally had to, like, fight his way around cords and big blocky 1980 computer crap to just steer the car. But Porsche stuck with it for years. And development was so slow that they had no way of creating 200 of these cars to homologate them for Group B racing. So they had to find somewhere else to be able to test these cars as they worked with them, because Group B just wasn't really an option with how much time and money was going into the creation of the 959. This is when Porsche looked to the Dakar Rally. The Dakar Rally is a very long distance, very grueling, extremely difficult off-road race. But it doesn't require any homologation, so Porsche could compete in it with just three cars made, and they didn't have to worry about making any other ones, so they could test their cars in the limited number that they were able to produce them. When Porsche started testing with the Dakar Rally, the 959 was still well in the works. In fact, most of the 959s that competed in Dakar were not even turbocharged. They were basically just modified 911s to have all-wheel drive. But this is where the 959 was in development, and Porsche wanted to see how things were going at this point. So the cars competing in Dakar weren't really 959s, they were more like 911s. The first year that these quote-unquote 959s uh, would compete in the Dakar Rally 
was in 1984. And like I said, these were the fundamentals of the 959s, basically modified 911s. And they were actually referred to by a different name. These cars were called 953s. So in 1984, these Porsches took off in the Dakar Rally. It is a grueling race. It's more seen as an off-road race. It's, it's not really like rallying. And vehicles like trucks and jeeps and special-built, really off-road cars are seen as the most competitive. But Porsches came in, and they took 1st, 7th, and 25th. So really, it suggested that Porsche had a pretty good core at this point. The next year in 1985, three more of these development 959s would be entered into the Dakar Rally again. Unfortunately, this year would not go super well. About halfway through the season, Porsche made the decision to turbocharge two of these cars. However, one of these cars that had been turbocharged actually burned down. And this was a big issue with the 959 during its development. The 911, which was the base of the 959, is not a big car, and it doesn't need to be. It has a simple drivetrain with the engine in the back giving power to the rear wheels, and then it just has a simple transmission and there's not that much to it. So, when Porsche decided to shove all of this stuff into the same chassis for the 959, the turbochargers, the all-wheel drive, the computerized systems, it didn't leave much space. And the problem with everything getting crammed in together is that is hard to cool. Heat buildup was a big problem for the 959, and something that took a lot of engineering and a lot of time, again slowing the process, to get rid of. It also meant that uh, burning down 959s uh, was not super uncommon during testing. These cars produced a lot of heat, and that heat had nowhere to go. Another especially sketchy part of the development of the 959 was the brake system. It really didn't like to behave. Here is a quote from Dieter Raschen, who was a test driver and engineer for the 959, about the brakes. Quote, At braking system tests on the Italian high-speed track of Nardo, for instance, the brakes would suddenly become extremely hot and the car would sometimes jump two meters to the left or right. The problem was that we couldn't really simulate this fault. Sometimes the car would brake to the left, sometimes to the right. It behaved like a rabbit zigzagging across the road." End quote. Porsche spent a lot of time trying to figure out why the car did this. They replaced the entire ABS braking system, they got new tires, they were kind of lost. Eventually, it was found that this issue was caused by the brake fluid boiling and forming bubbles, even though Porsche was using high-performance racing brake fluid. So again, heat buildup, big problem for the 959. However, they did eventually sort this out, they eventually got enough cooling and enough airflow through the engine to allow it to not constantly burn down and boil brake fluid. In 1986, a 
fully flushed out 959 would again race in the Dakar Rally, along with two other fully flushed out 959s, they would do very well, taking first place, second place, and sixth place. And this version of the 959 was basically the road legal, ready to sell version. They were nearing the end of its development in 1986. That same year, a version of the 959, which was called the 961, would also race in the 24 Hours of Le Mans, and it would do well winning its class and taking 7th overall. A little funny thing, though, about the class is they didn't really know how to classify this all-wheel drive Porsche, and so it actually technically raced as an experimental model in the IMSA GTX class. In 1987, the car was raced again in the 24 Hours of Le Mans, but it would go horribly when a driver would shift from 6th gear to 2nd gear on accident, lose control, smash into a wall, and catch the car on fire. But now, the 959 is finally ready. It is finally done, four years after it started its development. And some people might be like, hey, four years isn't that long for a car. But again, this car is basically just a modified 911. They didn't need to do that much, but they chose to do pretty much everything. Also, some of you may have noticed a strange thing with these dates, if you're well-versed in your automotive history. The 959 was finally ready and finally sold in 1987. And remember, the 959 was developed to compete in Group B rallying. But what also happened in 1987? Group B rallying was banned. It was removed. It was no longer a thing. The 959 took so long to develop that the race that it was developed to compete in was no longer in existence. Which is a little disappointing. Seeing a Porsche that has all of the fancy gadgets, all-wheel drive, computerized, suspension adjustments, everything it needed, turbocharged as well, Compete in Group B would have been amazing. So it is very sad that this timing did not work, but it's also kind of Porsche's fault because of some of the choices they made. So I guess only one can fantasize about the Porsche 959 ripping it up on a Group B rally stage. And even at this point, the 959 wasn't actually fully finished. Porsche would sell the 959 to a customer without any issue, Uh, But whenever that customer would bring in their 959 for service, Porsche would add updates to the car that had been finished after the car was sold. So even at 1987, the 959 wasn't quite there, but Porsche had spent so much money and so much time that they they just kind of decided to sell it anyways. Now, finally, I'm aware I've not talked about what is actually powering this car, what does it look like. You've had little tidbits, so let's get into a little bit of the specifications. The engine is a sequentially twin-turbocharged dual-overhead cam flat six. The sequential turbo setup means that two turbochargers are used, one being smaller, and that allows it to be more effective at providing boost at lower RPMs, and the secondary turbo is larger, allowing it to provide lots of boost at high RPMs. 
and what this allows is essentially turbo lag is removed completely because no matter what RPM the engine is at, one of these turbos is providing at least a decent amount of boost. This engine was also fuel injected, which is pretty fancy for 1980s. Interestingly, it had air-cooled cylinders and water-cooled heads. It had a displacement of 2,949 cubic centimeters, and power was around 444 horsepower at 6,500 RPM. This version of the 959 actually wouldn't break the 200 mile per hour mark. It was really, really close. It was like 197 or something. Uh, in 1988, a sports version of the 959, called the 959S, would break this barrier. Power was pushed up to 508 horsepower, and the top speed was 211 miles per hour. The transmission used was a manual transmission that offered five forward speeds, one low all-terrain gear, and reverse. The all-wheel drive system was developed to allow for different amounts of power to be sent to each of the wheels, front or rear. So this system was called the PSK and was able to send as much as 80% of the torque to the rear wheels. So if you wanted to drift some corners and break those rears loose, that was definitely possible with this all-wheel drive system. It was a pretty quick car with a 0-60 to 60 time of 3.6 seconds. That is the just base 959, not the sport 959. So now, finally, the 959 is up for sale. It's missed its rallying opportunities in Group B. It's had some success in Dakar. It's had some success at Le Mans. So what is the world going to think of it? Is it going to sell well? Unfortunately, no. And for, in my opinion, a very stupid reason. This car was so well-developed, so flushed out. Every single air was fixed it handled perfectly, it was seen as a boring sports car. It didn't have any personality, didn't have any raw emotion, and so people were like, it's a great car, it's just not the one I want. And I think this also speaks to the idea of what a car is. Modern cars are all computerized, much like the 959. And they seem to have less personality. Every single SUV out there looks the same. In some ways, cars have lost their uniqueness, and is this due to the computerized age? Is it due to everything being mapped out and everything being perfect, and there being no small errors allowed to exist within the car? Perhaps. It's really up to the driver on what their driving experience is like. If you're just trying to get from A to B, you don't care if your car has personality. It does not matter to you. In fact, probably you don't want it to have personality. But if you're like me and you enjoy cars and you enjoy what cars represent and they, the feeling of cars and the personality of cars and the connection to cars, you want your car to have some personality. And so I said the reason for the Porsche failing is stupid, being that it's a boring sports car. But maybe it's not that stupid. Maybe this was the change that created ununique cars. Maybe this was the downward spiral that led to the mass zombie apocalypse of SUVs. I don't know, but it's a possibility. 
Another reason that the 959 did not sell well is that they couldn't sell it in the United States, and they planned to. The 959 was seen as a representation of freedom, a individualist car, something that would just go out and, and be ridiculous and, and be obnoxious for, for the sake of just doing that. And so the CEO of Porsche even said, we're not going to sell these cars in Russia. That's not the market we're going for. And they really wanted to sell in the United States. But they couldn't because they couldn't get the 959 to be registered for road use in the United States. The reason it couldn't get registered was that Porsche would not provide the four cars required for crash testing within the United States. And this is a tough one because in some ways it feels like Porsche is shooting themselves in the foot again. Four cars wouldn't be that big a deal and then they could sell to a market that they wanted to and would probably enjoy this car. But with the amount of time and money that they went into this car... They spent so much money. It was estimated that they spent a million Deutschmarks per car. You probably don't want to give four cars to be smashed because that's four million Deutschmarks going down the toilet. So they chose not to sell it in the United States. An interesting little side note is the Porsche 959 would actually be the first car and the car that pushed through the show and display law to allow it to get into the United States. This occurred in 1999 and was actually pushed forward by Bill Gates and a couple other people. Essentially, this law allows cars to be brought into the United States that don't meet road regulations to be display pieces, to just be shown off. They're not meant to be driven, which is certainly a sad fate for a 959. Finally, I want to mention that the 959 was an important car to Porsche. It did not sell well, it wasn't able to compete in the competitions it was designed to, but Porsche engineers and the people that worked on it truly loved this car. I'm sure it was a headache at the time, but it's very important to them, and they have a strong attachment to this car. The 959 was also an important stepping stone in the progress of Porsche as a company that allowed them to get to where they are today. While it was a pain while it was developed, while it was perhaps a little bit ahead of the time with the computer technology available and it didn't sell well, it did provide the basis for what Porsche is today and Porsche appreciates the 959 for that. That's going to be it for this episode on the Porsche 959. I truly hope you enjoyed. I thought it was a great car and a fascinating story. Let me know if you think the 959 is a success. Lots of people spin it as a successful car, but it, but it didn't really succeed at what it was meant to do. So in your opinion, was the Porsche 959 a successful car? If you'd like to support the podcast, the number one way to do that is to leave reviews and to follow the podcast on whatever platform you are listening. You are also welcome to hit me up on social media. My Instagram is automotive.podcast, my Twitter is automotivepod, and my Facebook is at automotivepodcast. I post car facts and will let you know about upcoming episodes. Feel free to request episodes as well. I'm always happy to provide you with an episode that you want to hear. Other than that, I hope you enjoyed listening, and I will see you next week.